I'm with uh, Kirsten Jewett, who is a table leader at Bible Project. And Kirsten, could you just tell us uh, what the format is? What happens when you come 9.30 Sunday mornings? Well, it's pretty informal process. You don't have to register. You don't have to sign up or anything. Just show up. And um, we just watch a video, kind of short like you saw there, and then we have some great discussion about it. And it's just really informative. There's probably a couple of myths out there. You gotta drop your kids off, it's okay. It's kid friendly, there's activities for kids there. Another myth is like, oh, I couldn't make it last week, so I'm behind. They're kind of self-standing, absolutely they build on each other, but each session stands on its own, so don't let that discourage you. That's an important thing because we want something for the whole family and this really engages young people. So uh, what have you learned through the Bible Project? Well, the list would be too long. I would take away your sermon time. But <laughs> just so many things like we talk about, you know, the new covenant and Jesus. Well, what were the old covenants? You know, I had no idea there was so much poetry in the Bible. It's Genesis chapter one is full of poetry. Lots of things like that and just how everything ties together. It's just amazing how everything fits into the story. There's no piece that's out of place. That's an important thing, you know, because sometimes we take things out of context or we want to take poetry lit literally. And so this gives us a great overview of what the Bible is and how to read it and how to interpret it. So that's great. Uh, how has the Bible Project impacted you personally? It's just opened up my eyes and just given me a better understanding. And I think everyone in this room has read verses or chapters or the entire Bible. But it's seeing it through a whole different lens and sometimes like how God might see things. And it just gives new meaning to the service. The songs we sing, you'll be like, oh, that's kind of what that's getting at. And it just is a new way to read the Bible. I'm so glad you're part of it, and we invite everyone, really, to be part of the Bible Project. It is informative, it is teaching, and if you've ever wondered, you know, what is the Bible about, and you've kind of read parts of it, and you, you scratch your head and don't know why that is, please join Kirsten and the team. It'll be a great time. 9.30, Sunday mornings, come. See you next Sunday. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's say thank you to Kirsten. All right. Well, it's good to see everyone here this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Today we are starting a new series, and I'm very excited about it, Moral Mayhem. Now, the title looks kind of scary. We just missed the Halloween part. But as we get into this story, I think you'll know why we're calling it Moral Mayhem. Now, we're going to start with the most outrageous story in the Bible. And some of you who may have grown up in the church or have read the Bible many times, or maybe you're just very new to it, you may have skipped this story. You may have read the Bible to your kids uh, as they're growing up, and you got to this story and you said, oh, you know what? This is a little R-rated. This is a little 18A. We can't really expose them to this story yet. So as you hear the story today, as you kind of find out more about it, um, don't be scared. <laughs> don't be worried. We'll walk you through it. But this story is a little bit long, it's a little bit complicated, and it's a little bit clunky. So I'm hoping and, and praying that as we talk it through, we're going to see why this story is even included in the Bible. Now, if you get lost as we're talking about it, and you kind of get lost in the length of the story, you want to check out our app, 
because our app will have all the media messages on there, all the series messages, the discussion guides are on there for your circle groups as you unpack this story more uh, throughout the week, uh, and the message notes are there as well. So use that, connect with it, and it'll be a helpful way to really track with us as we unpack this story. Now the series Moral Mayhem is going to be found in, in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is found in the Old Testament, and it's a narrative part of the, of the story of the ancient Israel's history. It took place at the time they moved from, uh, into the Promised Land. So we have, if you have some familiarity, but I'll give you a little bit of context, we have Moses who helps the Israelites come out of Egypt. They were slaves, they were used and abused, and they cried out for help, and God heard their cries, and God takes them out of Egypt with Moses as their leader, and he helps to shape them into a new humanity. Because when you have been a slave for a long time, you forget what it's like to be a human. So the experience we have is Moses leading his people out of Egypt. God encounters them, gives them laws, gives them a way to understand what it looks like to be a new humanity. And then Moses dies and Joshua takes over and Joshua takes them into the promised land, into this new place, and they get settled and then Joshua dies. And then we we have about 330 years where Israel is kind of uh, this existing tribes that are working together and they don't have a king at this point. Uh, This is before King Saul or David or Solomon. And so this is a period of judges. It takes place in this in-between odd time and uh, there is no monarchy yet. And so I'm so glad that Kirsten shared with us a little bit of a Bible project because it helps us engage with what the story is about. It helps us understand the context and the themes and all the things that we come uh, to in, into interact with as we join the story of Judges. So back to our story. Israelites had a common ancestry, common religion, common language. They're living in this place that's promised to them. And the thing they have in common is that they have 12 distinct tribes. So they have 12 tribes. They make up one nation. Now the reason they have 12 tribes, and if you know some of the histories, there was Abraham who had Isaac, who had Jacob, And Jacob had 12 sons. And so these sons basically become leaders of the tribes, and the 12 tribes are inhabiting the promised land, but there is no king. And there's no king because God is supposed to be their king. God is supposed to be the leader of this nation, and the laws he has given them through Egypt, or sorry, through the deserts coming out of Egypt, was supposed to shape them and help them be a certain kind of people. All the other nations around them have kings. All the other nations around them have different kind of gods. And Israelite God says, this is how you're to be different. You're going to be a new humanity that is going to shine to your neighbors. And as we learn and unpack the book of Judges, we realize very quickly that there's a law given to them, but it's forgotten and ignored. And that people begin to do different things, and there's, there's conflict. There's conflict with their neighbors. There's conflict within themselves. And judges come up, and essentially... Judges' job is to be political leaders and people to help obey the law. But we learn through the book very quickly that people are not following the law and the judges are not keeping the rules. And now if you're imagining judges and you're kind of thinking the court system, you know, the black robe, uh, that kind of thing, that is not the kind of judges we have here. The judges we have is the regional political military leaders and their authority is to distribute the law and if they need to go to war, they go to war. But we learn very quickly that A, they forget the law, and secondly, that the people, because they have no king, and because they forget that God is supposed to be their king, don't like to be told what to do. And the law is kind of far away from their, from their thoughts, far away from their thinking, 
There's no king, no real government, and so everybody begins to do whatever they want to do. So this is our crazy story that we're encountering and coming into. We have a group of people that begins to do whatever they want to do based on what they think is right, and they find themselves in this huge cycle. And the cycle is, is that they do things, things are going well, but then they do bad things, and they find themselves in trouble, and then they call for help, and then God raises up a judge, or God raises up somebody to help them, and they get help, and they kind of get better, and then they forget God again, and they do bad things, and it's just over and over, rinse and repeat. God delivers them, and they promise they'll, they'll never do this again, but then they do it again. Kind of sounds familiar, right? What the book of Judges is doing so well as we encounter it is it's covering uh, the human condition really well. Even if you're not a religious person, even if you've never heard this story before, even if you're here because somebody invited you and it's a long weekend and you're visiting us and you're like, I don't really go to church, but I guess I'll come because my friend, I'm staying at their house and they're, or they're my family and they're forcing me to come. And you're going to be kind of wondering, why are we hearing this crazy story? Bear with us. It has a point. So these people continue to do things they're not supposed to do. They ask for forgiveness, they get rescued, and they do it again. And maybe you've experienced something like this in your life. You know, your conscience or the rules you receive from your parents or maybe even the law of the land tells you not to do something. You kind of really want to. And so you do it and you get yourself in a mess and you've disobeyed your conscience, the law, the God, religion, whatever it is that's driving you. And then you're like, I really need help, and I'll never do this again. Just somebody needs to rescue me. Somebody needs to pull me out of this mess. And then somebody comes along, and they give you a second chance. And they get you out of jail. Or they start a new relationship with you. And you quickly realize, oh, this is good. But if you haven't worked on that thing that caused you to break the rule in the first place, you find yourself breaking it again and again and again. So the book of Judges is that kind of human condition. It's about a people for 330 years, got in trouble, got delivered, got in trouble, got delivered. And what I want us to unpack today is that the story reflects us so deeply. And I think it reflects the perpetuating idea that we have in Canada, which says, hey, you do you, I'll do me, and as long as we don't hurt each other, it's probably okay. Do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody. Doesn't that tie to our cultural idea a little bit? Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had Joel Thiessen visit us for our drive volunteer workshop. If you missed it, it was an amazing time. And Joel is a sociologist who helped us unpack our survey that we participated as a church, a survey that looked at flourishing congregations, that looked at the religious compass in Canada, how Canadians in general view God and religion, and one of the things he helped us unpack is this idea and this psyche that lives within us that says, you can do whatever really you want, but because we're nice, polite Canadians, long as you're not hurting anybody, that's okay. But he helped us unpack and look at it from a sociological different way, which said, what if life really doesn't work that way? What if doing whatever you want actually has consequences for everybody around you? What if it has consequences for you? Consequences for people who love you? Consequences for your neighbors? And so with this in mind, in this context of you do you, doing whatever you want, doing whatever you think is right in your own eyes, is the context we're going to enter this story. 
Now again, I want to give you a warning. It, our story starts in, in Judges chapter 19 and covers the last three chapters of the book. So I'm starting with the last story of the book we're going to cover over the next bunch of weeks. But this is a gruesome and crazy story. So I'm going to invite you not to read it along with me because it's long, and so I'm just going to tell it. I'm going to skip some parts in it, but I'm going to explain and get to the heart of what the story is doing. And it's probably going to jar you a little bit. But what the story starts with is a Levite who lives in, the place in Ephraim. And Levite was a part of a tribe of Levites, so he was part of the one of the 12 tribes, and they were the priestly tribe. And we don't know his name, but this Levite who lived in this hill country of Ephraim got himself a girlfriend. All right? So throughout the story, she's actually referred to as a concubine, his concubine. And a concubine was kind of like a girlfriend, kind of like a servant, kind of like a wife. You can kind of fill in the blanks here, what's going on with equality there. And just so you know, it, it was kind of legal for Israelites to have concubines, but it wasn't exactly legal in their law to have a concubine. It's this kind of gray area, and it certainly was against the customs and traditions of Israelites. And the whole idea of having a concubine was something they actually inherited from their neighbors, from the Canaanites. And these are the people they were supposed to stay away from. And they were supposed to stay away from them not because of race, not because of nationality, but because who their God was. And because of who their God was, how they acted. But Israelites began to do what was, whatever they thought was right. And they wanted this, and so they adopted these customs. And so we start with this Levite who has this uh, concubine, this girlfriend, and she's born in Bethlehem in Judea. So he went down to Judea, to Bethlehem, and found this woman and brought her back up with him. And they're living together for a while, and things are going okay. And then we learn in the story that she's unfaithful to him. And he finds out. And she finds out that he found out. And she hits the road and runs back to home and hides with her family. And the Levite is angry, we assume. And some time goes by. He doesn't go after her. He kind of just does his own thing. And some period of time goes by. And we don't know if he's just kind of, his anger went away or he kind of settled with it or he got really lonely. But he decides, you know what? I'm going to go and get my girlfriend back. So he travels south. This is kind of the geography here. He travels south through Benjamin area, which is another tribe of these 12 that make up one Israel, and shows up at her father's house and says, hey, I've come for my woman. I don't know if it says it that way, actually, in the Bible. And if you're dating, by the way, if you're a young adult, not a good way to start with a father-in-law. All right, so he says, I'm, I've come for your daughter. And the father, he's not too excited about this, but there's a, it just, it's a weird culture and time. It's even hard for us to read what's really happening here. But he invites them in, and they kind of start hanging out, and they end up drinking all night. They drink hard. And he wakes up, and by the time he kind of sees straight, it's already noon. It's too late to go home because you have to travel through the night, and then there's bandits and all these kind of things. So the father-in-law says, no, no, stay, stay, stay longer. And they drink again all night. And the same thing happens again and again and again. And it goes on for days and days and days. And finally, the, the Levite is like, no, I got to get out of here. We got to go. And he's like, well, no, eat something before you go. And he makes the, the Levite late. But at this point, the Levite said, no, we're going. We're going to start this journey. So he takes his concubine. He has a male servant with him. So we know he's, he's somewhat wealthy. And he has two donkeys. And he loads up his, all of this. And they head out to, uh, from Bethlehem. And they're going to travel back to Ephraim and try to get this relationship work out, which is road trips are always great for working out relationships. They leave late again, and the journey begins, and the sun begins to go down, and they end up showing up at the gates of a town called Gibeah. 
I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you here, but they're at Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is where the tribe of Benjamin lives. This is another tribe that he traveled through before. Now he's going back up north to his place, and they're in Gibeah, and it's getting late. And he, so he's, he decides, okay, we're going to stay in this town. We're going to find some hospitality. So they go to the town square, and they wait. And the reason they do this is back then, there was a law, there was a way of doing things that if you were a stranger in a town, there was a law of hospitality, which said you are to take a stranger in. See, the reason this law existed is because God took the Israelites and always said, you're going to be a different kind of humanity that doesn't hurt the alien, the immigrant, the stranger amongst you. You're going to care for them. You're going to care for the poor. You're going to care for the widow. You're going to care for the marginalized. You're going to be different people. But because Israelites have forgotten who their God is, they've forgotten who their king is supposed to be, they begin to mimic the nations around them. And nobody's coming to help the Levite, the concubine, his servant, and the donkeys. And, no, and even though he's not a Benjamite, he's a Levite, so they're all Israelites, but nobody's helping him. So the sun sets, and they're kind of stuck in the square, and nobody's helping them out, and so they're waiting their time, and they're biding their time, and they're waiting, and a guy shows up, and they start talking, what are you doing here? And they find out that this guy actually has a connection to him. This guy who lives in, in, in Gibeah was actually from Ephraim. He's from a place, at one point, he lived in the place that Levite lived. So there's a connection there. So he says, come to my house. I will take care of you. I will exercise the law of hospitality. You'll be under my roof. Okay? So he takes them into their house, and he shows them hospitality, and he's feeding them, and he's protecting them, and they're all together. Okay, so are we tracking? We're all kind of on board here so far, what's happening in the story? Everything's looking good. This, this house leader is at this point kind of looking like a hero. Things are going okay. This is where the story begins to get very, very weird. And those of you that have never read the Bible would be like, this is why I don't believe the Bible. Because stories like this exist. And what do I do with these stories? So bear with me. So the author tells us that late in the evening, after they finish eating and drinking, the house is surrounded by Gibeonites, by the people that live in this town. And the Bible calls them wicked men. And they begin banging on a door, and they say to the man living there, bring out this stranger, bring out this man. Take him out of the house so we can have relations with him. Doesn't say relations. It's a gruesome part that's happening here. And it's confusing for us as readers to even engage with it. They want to take these men out to rape them. Now this was, and we need to have a little bit of context here, this isn't a gratification issue. It was a humiliation issue. Their neighbors, the Canaanites, would often humiliate other men by raping them, by abusing them, by showing dominance over other people. And the Greeks actually took on that tradition, and then the Romans, and it carried on. It was a form of male humiliation. So they're pounding on the doors, and they're saying, we don't like strangers, they shouldn't be here. We don't care about any laws of hospitality. Why are they here? We are fine as a people, and we have all these people coming into our country, using up our resources. What are they doing here? So we're going to humiliate them and send a message that nobody is welcome in our place. We want them out. Now, the owner of the house, who's at this point is kind of a, 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 a hero, comes out and says, don't do this vile thing. Even you know that this is bad. Even you know that this isn't good. But they don't listen to him. And so he says now, now all of a sudden, this guy who seems like a hero offers his daughter to them instead. 
and this man's concubine. Take them instead. I mean, they're not like men. They're lesser. This will be better. At least this way I'll protect the man. So he offers them. But they don't want this. They keep banging on the doors. They keep wanting these guys. So eventually the Levite takes his concubine and says, well, it's your fault anyways, and forces her out there. And she's raped and abused and beaten. And it's horrific. And he comes out of the house in the morning and he finds her dead at the doorstep. And he takes her and puts her on the donkeys and he goes back to Ephraim. Just a small crucial pause in this horrific story so far. It is crucial that we understand what is happening in each story and how we read the Bible. We sometimes come wrongly to the Bible or if we've never experienced it, we come to it and we say, well, my Christian friends say I should read it. And we read these stories and we go, Am I, is, this, is this like justice? Am I supposed to act this way? And sometimes we think we need to embrace the Bible characters and be like them. And I want to assure you that in no part of this story, the author or the readers of this story are supposed to mimic any of these people. This is horrific. Okay, back to our story. So we have one angry Levite. The laws of hospitality were violated. His concubine is murdered in the most brutal, imaginable way. He almost lost his own life. And so he gets home and he's upset. So he's going to write a letter to all the leaders of the 12 tribes and say, look what is happening in Israel. Look what's happening in our nation, that this is done. So he writes this whole letter to all these civil uh, leaders. Here's what happened. And then he realizes, you know what? People probably aren't going to listen to me because they have no idea who I am. So now the Levite does another horrific thing. And he cuts the dead concubine up into 12 parts and sends a letter with a part. And every leader receives this letter and they're outraged and they're like, what is going on? We, we, I can't believe this is happening in our own place. We have sunk to a new low. I mean, we, sure, we have some Canaanite ideas running over our tribes, and sure, we've had some disagreements with one another, but this is a new low. And the, and the Bible has a verse, such a thing, like they're, they're emphasizing that such a thing has never have been seen or done. Not since the day Israel came out of Egypt. Just imagine, they say. In other words, this is so horrible, we must do something about this. There must be justice. So speak up, and they gather together, and they try to get ideas, and they said, okay, what must be done is we must get those perpetrators out of Gibeah, and we must punish them. So they gather all the different places from all the different tribes. They collect men, and they make an army, and they go, um, all, they get from everywhere, and they go, go all the way to, uh, to Gibeah, and they want to demand justice. But they get there, and the people, the Benjamites and the Gibeonites in the city are like, no, we're not going to give them to you. These people came into our land. They're not welcome, and you're not welcome. And what happens is Benjamites are actually really good warriors, and so they take their army, and they fight these other tribes' armies, and they, they create a huge defeat on the rest of Israelite tribes. They defeat them in the first day, and tens of thousands of men are dead. The second day, they do the same thing. There's a whole bunch of people dead, and Benjamites are victorious. And you got to kind of, as you read through the story, go, wait a minute, what is God doing here? Why are the bad guys winning? Why are the good guys doing this? So on the third day, finally, Israel has this idea, and they decide we'll trick them, and they kind of get into battle again, but they, they pretend to retreat. 
So the Benjamites follow them, and then the other group of Israelites attacks the city, and they raise it, and, they, and at this point, they're so upset, and they're so mad because their men have been dying, so they slaughter this whole city, and they set it on fire, and they have this basically genocide, and they kill everybody, like everybody. And all that's left is 600 fighting men from the Benjamites, and they see that this is happening, that their city's on fire, and the rest of their army is losing now. And so these 600 guys take off in the desert and hide. And they stay there for four months, and they're trying to, like, figure this out while they're hiding. Now, the rest of the Israelites kind of go back, and kind of the, the anger of everything calms down, and a little bit of time goes by, and they're saying, wait a minute, what did we do? We just destroyed a whole tribe, a whole part of Israel. Instead of 12, we now have 11. This, is, this isn't good. Okay, we must reintroduce Benjamin again. We have to have 12. That was what God led us to. We have to reintroduce this nation. We have to make a right out of this wrong. So to make a right out of this wrong, what they do is they say, okay, well, there's 600 men. We know they're hiding. Let's bring them back. And somebody else says, well, they're just guys. They can't really start a new tribe. It's just a bunch of dudes. There's no women. And so then they start thinking. They say, okay, well, who in all of our tribes who went to fight, was there a city that didn't help us? They kind of ignored the command and didn't send anybody to fight with us. And they say, yeah, there is actually. There's this place called Jabesh Gilead. They didn't help us at all. So to make a right, they do another wrong. They attack the city and they kill people, all except the unmarried young girls, and take them out to bring them to the Benjamites to make that wrong a right and say, here, you can marry them and start your tribe again. But then there's not enough of them. So then they realize there's another festival that's happening where the young girls go out and they dance in the field. I don't know. It, it was a festival. And they say, okay, well, you Benjamites that didn't get a wife, you can hide in the woods and steal a wife for yourself. And that'll be okay because we're making some rights here. And so they steal these other young women and they marry them and this is supposed to make things okay somehow. And so they restart basically the Benjamite tribe. These guys are running with women over their shoulder, kidnapping them to start a tribe. And then the book of Judges ends. No heroes, nothing good. In fact, some of you, as I said, who were raised in the church, some of you who were raised even reading the Bible may not even heard this story because your parents are like, yeah, let's skip this one. Why is this happening? And as the writer of Judges ends this unbelievable, this crazy, horrific story, he makes a comment, and here's his comment in the final verse in the book of Judges, and it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. And because there was no king, because there was no final authority, because there was no one to impose the law of God on the nation, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their eyes. To put it differently, in those days, there was no binding moral consensus. There was, there was nothing that said, this is right and wrong. There was the law, but it was forgotten. So people follow, uh, followed their own moral compass. Everybody did what they thought was right. Now here's the really strange part of the story that the author is trying to show us, and then we can miss it when we get caught up in this horrific details of what happens in this story. And if you take the story and you reread it and you take each incident on its own, 
you would see that every character in that story thought they were doing the right thing. But when you put it all together, you put all, all those right decisions that everybody thought that they were doing based on their, on their best understanding, you have moral mayhem. You have horror stories. Look at the men in Gibeah. We don't want strangers. We, everything's working great here. We don't want anybody coming to our land and using our reason. Why are they here? This is the right thing to do that we punish them and make a um, show of them so others won't show up. They thought they were doing something right by humiliating and destroying the Levite. So they're pounding on the door. And the Levite says, well, you know what? I have to obey this, this law of hospitality. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to protect the men because they're more important. And I'm going to send out my daughter and this concubine out. I'm going to do the right thing. And then we have the Levite who looks at his concubine and says, well, it's your fault that we're in this place anyways. Why should I die for you? You're unfaithful. You ran away. Your dad got me drunk. And then she's murdered. And then the community's, uh, you know, horrified. And they want justice. So let's get an army and let's kill these, these perpetrators. Let's just take the guys that are responsible for this. They're the bad guys. But then, of course, there's civil war. And their own people are dying. And now there's more anger, and which causes genocide. But they were going to do what was right. They were going to punish those bad guys, those wicked men. And then they, then they don't learn their lesson, and they look and they say, we destroyed a whole tribe, so how do we recreate this tribe? Okay, well, let's bring the Benjamites back and make a whole bunch of other wrongs by killing another city, by murdering more people, to bring more women for these Benjamites to recreate this tribe. Every single part, all the, along the way, everybody was doing what they thought was right. And it was horrific. And this is why we need to come to the Bible with context and understanding that this story is not glorifying, is not showing us, and is not teaching us how to treat women, strangers, and even our enemies. It is teaching us what happens when we do what we think is right without God's wisdom. There's something in me, though, when I hear this story, and I'm so far removed from these, the ways of acting the way of Canaanites, the way of these other gods. There's something in me that says, wait, 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 wait. Okay, yeah, that's a horrific story and they forgot God, but this is my life. And it's so different than this. So let me just do my life and manage my family my way. I know what I'm doing. And you just manage your life and you do your thing your way. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll all be okay as long as we don't hurt somebody. And this is the underbelly of the unspoken part of our culture. We want the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want, because that's true freedom. We want to be autonomous, and we want to do things privately, and you just keep your stuff private to yourself. Well, what if life doesn't work that way? But if all our private decisions actually have implications. Now, there's a problem with all of this you do you and I'll do me thing. And we're going to unpack it through the weeks as we go forward from this. So I'm not going to unpack all of it today. So please come back because we're going to look at all of this moral mayhem and what does this mean when we privately act in a certain way and what are the repercussions to the rest of us.
But have you ever noticed that in Canada we have really great equality laws? We have laws for justice, proportional justice too, that we don't just chop people's hands off or do horrific things when something goes wrong. And have you ever noticed that these same laws don't actually exist in a whole bunch of other places in the world? I know this as an immigrant to Canada, that not all people are seen as valuable. And so sometimes when we come to this, I'll do you, you do me part of it, and we hear these other stories and we say, okay, yeah, but that's so far removed. I'm not like that. I know what is actually right. But I want to suggest that that rightness is actually not self-evident. Because if it was, same laws of equality and justice would exist everywhere. But they don't. They particularly exist in nations that have been influenced by Christian thought. And where they don't exist, the minority, the lesser, the less powerful is always used and abused. Think about women in other nations. Wherever there are women's rights, it's because women had to fight for them and to demand and say, we are equal. The reason we have laws in Canada that we have, the reason we celebrate and have people who fought for these freedoms is we recognize that we have a king who came into this world. And he said, you have heard, you have done, but here's what it looks like to have new humanity. And when Jesus lived here on earth, he showed a way to live that was so upside down and so radical that was completely counterintuitive to everything that the culture was doing. And he said, this is what it looks like for you to live. And it looks this way, that male and female are both made in my image. That you will honor those who are poor. That you will care for the widow. That you'll protect the least of these. That your justice will look in such a way that it will love others, even your enemies. That it will bring shame to them. So the whole thing, you do you, I do me, doesn't quite work because it has repercussions. In the story of the Levite in Judges 19, if this story has disturbed you today, if you heard some stuff and you go, oh, why are we even talking about this? It's supposed to disturb you because this is what it looks like when people do whatever they want as they see fit and they forget who God is. The Israelites who had God who took them out of Egypt and showed himself and revealed himself and said, this is the kind of people I want you to be was forgotten. And not only that, his character was forgotten, so much so that they assumed that God actually wanted these things. Assumed that God actually wants you to act in justice in this way by murdering and creating genocide. And the author is pointing to us and saying, that is not what I want. This is not who God is about. And so sometimes when you hear, you know, that was the Old Testament, this is the New Testament, they're really different. They are different. But the story is always pulling the people into the direction that is fully uh, realized and actualized in, in God, in Jesus. The story has always been pulling people to say, you have these laws not to be legalistic. The heart of them is for you to know how to be a new humanity. 
And when you forget that, and you do whatever you want, you'll create chaos and moral mayhem. And the fact that God uses these messed up, screwed up people does not mean he endorses any of their decisions. God is committed to saving people, but often all he has to work with is corrupted leaders. God is always for us, always hearing the cries of the oppressed. And in fact, further in the story, after he hears Israelites' cries and pulls them out of Egypt and brings them to promised land, and eventually they do become a monarchy, and eventually they do have a king, and eventually they become very powerful. And God reminds them, when you're powerful and you begin to oppress people, I will hear their cries. I will always hear the cries of the oppressed. Because the God we worship is a God who loves people, and he's for us and not against us. And so when we unpack this series as we look further into it and we look at the ju- certain judges and we look at what, what they did and what they didn't do, and as we look at the moral mayhem they created, I want us to catch something here. I want us to catch that all of our um, private choices have very public outcomes. What we do privately has a butterfly effect. It changes us at the very least, it affects us and who we are becoming. And if it creates moral mayhem in our lives, it will create moral mayhem in our neighbors' lives. It will change us significantly. So this idea that everyone doing what they thought was right, ending in the most horrible outcome imaginable, is deeply disturbing. So let us have humility today. Let us see ourselves in the story And take a really good look in the mirror at what drives us. What persuades us? Who are the gods in our life? And are they changing us for the better? And are they helping our neighbors? In our decisions, are they creating a peace in our city? Or are they causing moral mayhem? The thing that I learned in this book, and then we're going to unpack more, is that none of us are immune to it. Our heart calls and wants things all the time. But who is the king of your heart? Judges 21-25 ends, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Would you stand with me for prayer? God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, who is for us, a God who does not approve of chaos and moral mayhem and genocide and murder, a God who wants a humanity to be fully realized and follow the footsteps of Jesus. Help us, God, as we look carefully at ourselves through this series. Help us to see that not all things we choose to do are good but it also helps us to see that we can do good in you and through you. Thank you for your love and the grace that washes the mistakes of the past, that releases us from uh, bondage, that releases us from slavery and makes us a new humanity. Thank you for that gift that you offer completely and freely to each person. 
We thank you for your goodness, God. We praise in your name. Amen. There's going to be a prayer team up front here. If you have questions, if you're wrestling with any of these stories, please feel free to come up and ask and talk or have somebody pray with you. We have gifts for you at the information desk. Go in peace. Enjoy your long weekend.